Well, welcome everybody. This is episode 76 of The Professor and the Hack. I am hacking away. Hugh Rimited is my name and we have uh, PVO, The Professor, with us. Hello, Peter. G'day, mate. It's such a shame it's episode 76 and not 77. Joe Biden's age in honour of the 46th President of the United States. Yeah, or episode 46. We could have gone with that one because this we're going to make this <laughs> hell. We're going to throw everything else off. I don't care what's happening in Australia. Are you politics. driving? Are you driving, Hugh? In the background, I just hear people honking at you. I'm sure <laughs> this has got nothing to do with nothing to do with the presidency. Yeah? Absolutely. I have just run back, run at my age, I tell you, Peter, from the White House to my hotel, for those who know Washington at DuPont Circle, which is not far away few blocks back from the White House and uh, that noise you might be able to hear is the, is the relentless honking of horns. Uh, it has been like this now for some hours since uh, I was watching CNN. I don't know if anyone else called at first, but very quickly at the same time, CNN, CBS, uh, the New York Times, they all said, look, let's stop the farce. The numbers are in. There's no getting them back. Um, Philadelphia, sorry, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia being the capital, Pennsylvania, they called for uh, Joe Biden. And with that, even if you discount Arizona, and some already have Arizona in his camp, but even without Arizona in his camp, that pushes him over 270. The president of the United States elect and the vice president elect, Kamala Harris, let's not forget her, in all the, uh, uh, someone counted up 92 elections or something. There has never been a woman into the um, presidential or vice presidential area, let alone a woman who identifies as black, but not African-American. She's half Indian and half Jamaican by heritage. So congratulations to her as well. And that is a big thing that I will certainly not be forgotten in all of this. I mean, there's so many elements to it, aren't there? You know, Donald Trump, we can talk about this, although we probably don't have enough time on the program to go through how vile he truly is and has long been as US president. He is on the way out now. Uh, a woman, and as you say, uh, a, a, a black woman, a, a woman, uh, you know, in the in the role of VP for the first time, uh, which is of itself uh, a momentous occasion. And Joe Biden, you know, the oldest uh, elected president in U.S. history, winning with the biggest number of votes in U.S. history as well. I mean, in fact, Donald Trump. Uh, last thing I want to do is lionize him, but he's actually lost with the second biggest number of votes in U.S. history. Such was the turnout. Uh, and look, these are really important points because they're humbling points. Uh, this, the, 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 the mood in the streets, certainly in places like Washington, New York, Chicago, and the streets of LA, they're coming out uh, in their masses. Uh, people gathering in, in Philadelphia, in, in, in Wilmington, Delaware, as you might expect, which is Biden's home state. People are coming out. But two things to remember. Uh, Trump was right. He has got more votes, as you've just said, than any other Republican candidate in history. He would also make an argument that uh, he has turned it into the party of the working man and woman because the blue-collar uh, Americans are the ones, particularly in the heartland, have become most loyal to Trump. So that's a Republican party that has changed immeasurably, say, from the George Bush senior of not so, so long back. And many people have said to me on the Democrat and the Republican side, were it not for the coronavirus, he would have been reelected. So the, this is the pandemic has made this possible by still relatively narrow margins for Joe Biden to take down Donald Trump. So whatever are the impulses within the American body politic that produced Trump, uh, they still exist in huge numbers, despite 
the fact that 230 odd thousand Americans have died on his watch while he has been reckless in his uh, failure to respond properly to a pandemic. So there's a lot of people out there crying and weeping in anger as well as anything else. We don't want to give the day to them. We'll give it to the winners for the moment, but we, we can't ignore that that's also there. Yeah, look, it, it is there, but I, I'm a little bit more glass half full uh, about where it goes from here in the post-Trump era. We'll see if that's the case. The, the reason I say that is because I think demography is destiny here. And when you look at what's going on in the US, there's certainly a large number of blue-collar working-class Trump supporters, I agree. But, and his vote turnout, as we've just been talking about, was, was massive. Uh, but he's still going to lose the popular vote by over, well over 6 million votes. He lost the popular vote against Hillary Clinton, even though he won the Electoral College, by 3 million votes. So he's the first US president to contest two elections and lose the popular vote both times. And the reason I say, democ- <laughs> uh, the, the, the reason I say um, that you know, the, the, the destiny of demography is against the Republicans here is this. They've been able to get away with pandering in a way which is exclusionary to other cohorts in American society and really targeting those white working class, blue collar uh, Americans, they've been able to get away with it and lose the popular vote because of the electoral college. But that looks like it might catch up with them. Maybe not at the next presidential election, maybe not at the one after that, but depending on where, if you like, you know, where the ebb and flow of partisan politics is at, places like Texas, and we've seen it more so in somewhere like Arizona this time, we've seen it in Georgia as well. The South is switching as the demography changes, as the demographics change. And when somewhere like Texas, for example, eventually flips, and when Texas, and it will flip, when it becomes a Democrat stronghold once again, that's the moment in time where Republicans can't keep trying to win the Electoral College vote but lose the popular vote. They actually will need to look at the situation and say, hang on, we've got to do something about this. And what will that have to be? Well, and maybe arguably Trump started a little bit with some of his rhetoric this time because he did quite well in some Latino communities, particularly in Florida. But they will need to become more broad in their appeal rather than stoke the division that they stoke with white, blue-collar workers. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I think that is important as well. You know, the, the right is correct that you can't ignore the Trumpites just because you find Donald Trump himself a loathsome figure. But I also do think that Republicans want to take a cold, hard look at themselves because the Trump, the, the Trump approach doesn't guarantee them success. In fact, I would argue that it actually turns them more into a special interest exceptionalism party in the years to come if they don't broaden. It is astonishing. Two things came to me when I was down in Texas uh, because of the degree to which they were sincerely put to me and are so diametrically opposed. One was a woman who was formerly a Republican. She uh, had a, she was retired from a career in law enforcement. She was, um, uh, what do you call it, politicized, I suppose, to come out for the Democrats and in fact become the county chair of the Democratic Party in the town of Midland, Texas, by something that Laura Bush had written. And so think about this. Laura Bush, the former first lady, the wife of George W. Bush, had written an op-ed in the newspaper excoriating Trump for the policy of separating children from their parents at their border. Bear in mind, more than 500 children thus separated have never been reunited with their parents. They don't know where they are. And Laura Bush wrote wrote an op-ed saying that this wasn't what 
Republicans stood for. It wasn't Christian. It wasn't what America stood for. And it moved sufficiently this Republican law enforcement officer to go across and fight Trump. And she said, Donald Trump does not represent American values. And that notion of what American values are, that they are something special and elevated, resonated with her. Go to a Trump rally and you were seeing people say, I am American. We are Americans. Therefore, we vote for Trump. Their very sense of American identity, it was bound up in Trump. And that is difficult to deal with because you then think, well, if, if you think only Americans vote for Trump or that, you know, essentially, if you are American, you have no option but to vote for Trump. How does that person perceive the other half of the country, the more than half of the country who didn't want Trump? This, it's this kind of gazing out across in a state of bewilderment across a no man's land towards your fellow citizens is really what I, I see in the States. And what I think about Trump is, is that the cracks have been opening. It's a vast country. You're going to have cracks. But Trump put the crowbar into the cracks where he could find them and exploit them. And he widened those cracks everywhere he could with dishonest tactics, as well as just through sheer uh, sort of instinctive populism, populism. And he's opened them right up. Now, can Biden find a way to bind up those cracks? Over to you, Peter. You know so much more about this than me. Oh, look, I mean, I just, I think Biden's task is going to be hard because four years of Trump really has accentuated cracks that were already there. You know, American society had been dividing for a very long time. And there was a sense that the establishment Republican Party, I think, was becoming more and more out of touch with those blue collar working class Americans, but they weren't going to turn to the Democrats because the Republican establishment was the lesser of evils. And it also had to naturally have elements within the Republican Party that pandered to it. But the Republican establishment kept winning the nomination ahead of it. But we reached a point uh, when observing US politics where Donald Trump was then able to push through and the weight of his personality can't be underestimated here. I, I don't think the, the one area of hope on this I have is that I don't think someone other than Donald Trump can necessarily appeal to those, uh, those voters in the, in the same way that Trump has. Uh, there's a risk, of course, in four years that Trump has another crack. Um, but I do think that that others will struggle to do it the way he does it. I mean, I saw Donald Trump Jr. in Georgia talking and addressing a rally, really trying to use some of the mannerisms and the rhetoric and the style of his father, but with the loss of charisma, and I don't find Donald Trump charismatic, I find him vile, but I can identify the charisma that others see in him, particularly blue-collar white Americans. So uh, there's a lot of those elements in it, but I do think that when you look at the changing demographics around places like Texas, it's really important, but Biden's going to find it hard and, and make no mistake four years from now, you know, I mean, for a start, Biden will be 82 uh, when he's, when he's well, 81 turning 82 at the time of the next election, he's unlikely to, to well, unlikely to contest that election may not even still be around. Where is the economy and the country in the wake of coronavirus? People will forget uh, that it was, that it was something that Joe Biden inherited uh, with all the problems that now exist. They will blame him if he hasn't fixed it by then. And he may well not be able to fix it by then, you know, barring runoff elections in Georgia for the Senate, he won't control the Senate. Uh, so that will be difficult enough for him. So the divisions will be there. There will be populism that will continue. America has problems, no doubt. And by the way, Donald Trump will continue to hurl barbs 
from the sidelines, even if it's just through social media, and that will stoke his supporters. He may even start his own television network for all we know as well. So there's so many elements of problems that Biden will face. But I tell you what, let me just say this. Whatever way it slices or dices or how difficult it might be, the next four years is easier than another four years of Trump would have been. And I'm just simply, and this, and this is why I'm so disgusted at, at conservatives, how anyone could back Donald Trump, no matter how much you might dislike Democrats or no matter how much you might want to play your tribal politics on the right, this man is vile. He talks about grabbing women by the pussy. He does what he does to people who are disabled of color immigrants his rhetoric is vile his attitude is even more vile and he stokes divisions like no one i have ever seen hold that office and we of course now see his global dummy spit in the wake of the results coming in there has not been a more awful human being become president of the united states thank god he did not win another four years I cannot agree with you more, actually, uh, in terms of it, particularly everything that we think we knew about Donald Trump has been amplified in in these last few weeks, uh, right from actually earlier on in the year when when he was he was it was put to him about climate change. And he said, well, you know, it, it could be getting cooler, um, you know, that this complete uh, inability to grasp well, a total rejection of science, etc., uh, the dog whistling, uh, the 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 complete disconnect between objective truth and his own personal truth that he would project out there. In other words, lies that he would lie and lie and lie. Um, and in many ways, as Shakespearean, that a man can smile and smile and smile uh, and still be a villain. You know that he could uh, present himself out there to the to the people floating on an absolute sludge of his own dishonesty. And, you know, even now, you know, he's saying that, uh, that, that he doesn't accept this, that it's not appropriate. He's going to be in court tomorrow. You know, Boris Johnson has got in contact, you know, no, no, no ideological enemy of Trump's has, has got in contact with uh, Biden to say, you know, I look forward to working with you, all this sort of business. So the caravan has moved on, and yet he continues to fight. He is a demagogue. If there was not a democratic process that was sound, and, and he's continuing to use every tool that he can within that democratic process, I don't think you would have ever got him out. He's the kind of guy who would have declared, had he had any opportunity, a state of emergency and stayed on. So America, to my mind, is immeasurably better without him. That's not to say that his shaking up of complacency in some areas of, mm. of the American body politic uh, isn't, you know, hasn't brought benefits to America. People are on the balls of their feet. They're no longer taking things for granted. They're no longer taking their own democracy for granted. Uh, they're not, no longer taking the decision-making, the place of America in the world for granted. So I think what might emerge from this is a sharper, leaner, keener United States, more alive to the dangers around them. And that might be better for all of us. But uh, what a moment in time. And talk to us about Joe Biden. Here is a man whose career uh, you would have thought when he left office with Barack Obama involved a quiet twilight and a good body of work to look back on to satisfy himself in his dotage. Mm. <laughs> and the moment is now his. I know. What is he as a man? Tell us about him.
Look, he, his, his backstory is actually fascinating. You know, I mean, he's been in Washington in one form or another for nearly 50 years. Uh, and when he was first elected, uh, he was elected uh, and very quickly after that lost a child and his first wife in a car accident, uh, a second child badly injured but survived. He then lost uh, that child as an adult uh, to cancer, I believe it was, Beau Biden. Uh, and cancer. he... Exactly. And he, you know, and that was one of the factors apparently in why he didn't consider extending his political career in the aftermath of his vice presidency before feeling a duty to come back in the wake of four years of, of Donald Trump at the age that he has. Uh, he has a stutter. A lot of people have talked about sleepy Joe Biden and how he's got dementia as being one of the key criticisms that his opponents have tried to level at him. Keeping in mind, by the way, that similar criticisms were getting hurled at Hillary Clinton four years ago, by the way. But they've really tried to sort of suggest that he's sleepy Joe. He's not intellectually or mentally up for the job. But a lot of his speech patterns are driven by the fact that his whole life he's had a stutter and he's managed to control it and work on it and get it to the point where he can do what he now does. And there's been some incredibly touching moments during both the campaign and indeed his entire political career with him being frank about that and talking to children who, you know, who have a stutter at a much worse stage of it than someone of his age, uh, having had it under control. Uh, but he's most known as a legislator, as somebody uh, who can walk, and I don't mean this disparagingly, I mean it positively, walk both sides of the partisan divide in Washington. He can actually reach out across that partisan divide and forge friendships and relationships and pragmatic working relationships with Republicans. I mean, John McCain and him were lifelong friends with respect for one another uh, when John McCain was a senator uh, for the Republicans before he became a presidential candidate for the Republicans. And that is no small point because even though it looks like he's going to win well over the 270 votes he needed for a while there, it looked like it was going to be Arizona that might actually deliver single-handedly the numbers he needed to get over the 270. What's Arizona? And I love the karma of this, by the way, for Donald Trump. Arizona was the home state of John McCain. John McCain was treated like dog shit by the president, Donald Trump. He was described as a loser because he was a prisoner of war. He was mocked repeatedly. And guess what? He's now the late John McCain. His wife, Cindy McCain, campaigned hard for the Democrats. His daughter campaigned hard for the Democrats. And Arizonans, it's still up in the air, but it looks like Arizonans will have delivered that state to the Democrats off the back of the abhorrent way that John McCain was treated as a war hero, as a former Republican presidential candidate by Donald Trump. And that was, to me, the ultimate kick up the ass that Donald Trump got and deserved for the way that he acted. It's, it, it would have been poetry in motion, Hugh, if Arizona was the difference between victory and defeat for Donald Trump. Absolutely. I mean, John McCain, you mentioned, was shot down over Hanoi. He was in a prisoner of war. They broke his arms. He could never raise his arms above his shoulder height. And, uh, and because he was the son of an admiral, at a certain point, the North Vietnamese were willing to trade him away. And he insisted that he wouldn't, he wouldn't be sent home until, and, until and unless all the other American prisoners of war were sent home first. He stuck that with it. Trump's response was, I prefer my Americans who don't get captured. It was, it, you know, what a piece of shit. Let's just say it. I don't usually go before a microphone with this language. Uh, Donald Trump was. And while we've been talking, by the way, uh, a tweet from Scott Morrison, 
just come in. Congratulations to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Australia wishes you every success in office. The Australian-US alliance is deep and enduring and built on shared values. So true. I look forward to working with you close. I, I look forward to working with you closely as we face many of the world's challenges together. We will take a break, but Peter. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say. Yeah, sorry, Hugh. I was, I was just going to say. I guess. Uh, he has finally sent that because a number of world leaders I see over the last few hours were coming in a sleepy Sunday morning, perhaps, uh, before the PM got round to it. But the good news is it probably means no more rallies uh, will be attended uh, by Scott Morrison with Donald Trump. I remember attending those during the uh, state visit uh, when, we, when we headed to one of the key battleground states uh, of Ohio. Uh, which the president did retain. Uh, but anyway, it's good to see Scott Morrison. Do, and, and by the way, doing what world leaders should be doing and welcoming what uh, whatever happened from the election, because that would have been the case even if Donald Trump had won. Um, but yes, uh, fortunately, he didn't. Let's take a quick break. And we'll, we'll, we're going to keep on this theme. A little bit about foreign policy matters a lot to us and, and who Joe Biden will be. Uh, back in just a moment. 10 News First Person brings you quality stories from the 10 News First team. Yeah, it was intense. It was uh, Armageddon. Eyewitness accounts from people that were there. I just started to try and free myself. You know, I had one free arm. I was able to dig around my face and free my other arm. Interviews with power brokers, journalists telling the stories that matter most to them. Subscribe to 10 News First Person wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. We've got a special American edition of The Professor and the Hack. It is, uh, I don't know what day of the week it is. I've got to be honest. I think it's a Saturday. <laughs> well, it's, is it a Saturday? It's, di- it's, it's different there it's to Sunday. here. It's, it's Sunday here, oh. Saturday there. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Look, um, anyway, we've got a new president. His name is Joe Biden. Uh, let's talk about one of the things. Uh, you know, Bi- uh, Trump was... Um, almost willfully ignorant about foreign policy, except to the degree that uh, he had hotels in various places, and he broke the rules on all kind of established norms on on dealing with dictators and all that kind of stuff, and maybe not at every level, with Kim Jong-un is one example, to the worse. I mean, no one's been able to rein those buggers in. But you look at Biden, he's a different kettle of fish. He was, for many years, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, probably more than anybody in terms of just sheer decades spent in it. He has dealt with uh, the issues of American alliances, of challenges to the United States, challenges to the, if you like, the Western order. Um, So how does that change? How is it likely to change the arithmetic between the United States, Australia obviously involved in this, and China? Well, what do you think, Hugh? I'm interested in getting your thoughts before I jump into this. Well, I think for one thing, it'd be far more orthodox. Uh, Mike, you know, I think what is brewing in China, uh, this is my gut feeling, is that is that the Chinese are looking for an opportunity to retake Taiwan. Uh, Their language about it has stepped up to bellicose war language that's being pumped out through uh, the Chinese state media. People in Taiwan are frightened. We've talked about this between the two of us. Um, I suspect the Chinese, enormously sophisticated people as they are, and they certainly are, will step back now a little bit. They'll probe weaknesses, look for weaknesses with Biden and seek to exploit them. But I think that um, one of the things that will come out of this is, is that 
the United States will signal, even by this decision, that grown-ups are back in charge of American foreign policy. The free ride and the kind of the buddy-up, cozy, kissy-kissy with uh, Vladimir Putin, that ain't happening anymore. Uh, Xi Jinping uh, will have, uh, you know, strategic adversaries who understand him well and don't treat you know, don't treat him as a cartoon. And, um, and I think what we're going to see, it doesn't make the world necessarily safer or anything else like that, but it will bring an orthodoxy and a seriousness back to foreign policy. And I think by and large and balance, that's good for the United uh, That's good for Australia as well as for the United States. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think I, I, I was talking to somebody the other day about this, who was wondering what the impact on the, on the world stage would be to, in, in terms of, the differences between a Biden four years to come versus uh, Trump and another four years. And even though, you know, standing back from, from it all, uh, there are plenty of international scholars who do think that some of the decisions that Trump has made uh, have been quite good ones on the international stage when it comes to foreign policy for both America and Australian positioning, particularly in, in, in the, the, the difficult times of, of what's happening with China, um, but also on other issues. Nonetheless, they almost collectively also say most other world leaders and nations feel like things will be easier and better in a post-Trump era. And the reason for that is not necessarily that individual decisions are going to be better made by a Biden administration than a Trump-led administration. It's just the certainty and the stability and the, the ease of dealing with a more orthodox America where you know where you stand. The thing about Donald Trump is he might make decisions in a foreign policy sense, which benefit Australia or other nations who are Western allies from time to time. But you sit on the edge of your seat waiting to know one way or the other, which way he is in fact going to go. And you don't get comfort from a good decision necessarily, because then it's a whole new game the next time he makes a decision. There's, there's that inconsistency about his leadership style. So that has been the overwhelming attitude as I understand it, inside governments around the world who would consider themselves allies of the United States, Australia therefore included, you know, moving to a Biden presidency uh, is good for stability and orthodoxy and certainty. It also says that alliances matter. We're likely to get back to that situation where the United, the United States, powerful as it is, is still only 330 million people. Uh, it, it's uh, unless it is just simply to be another wealthy country in the world which does various things, uh, you know, in other words, be diminished in terms of its influence, then it, it does it through alliances. And this has been, you know, the long, serious thinking about, uh, about the United States and its place in the world, really through the 20th century and then into this century. And uh, for all the missteps and all the rest of it, until Trump came along, that was broadly speaking the bipartisan position. So what we are likely to see now, and I think it will be a good thing for us in Australia, is uh, a, a greater, uh, more serious engagement with alliances that will, you know, that we will understand who our friends are in the world and and recognise in a world which is increasingly subject to demagoguery, um, the importance for us of of democratic countries to recognize each other, not to take pot shots at each other, not to tear up communiques moments after they've been signed, uh, you know, not to go around the place whinging about your allies far more than you whinge about your adversaries, uh, but rather get back to that other stuff. And I, I look, I think that's, that's a strong 
that's a strong point. The, the other thing is, is that Biden has spoken. It, it hasn't been the sort of grabs, I don't think, that have run very widely back in Australia. But he has continued to speak at all opportunities. It's easy for him to drop it about climate change. And mm. he has raised an expectation here that the United States is going to be uh, far more forward on pursuing science and taking seriously the threat to the planet from climate change and doing something about it. That's got to be to the good for a place like Australia that's vulnerable to a warming planet. And he will also presumably, uh, you know, lead somewhat more on responses to the pandemic. He needs to do that internally within the United States, but also, uh, you know, it signals that um, this, this quite lunatic approach from, from Trump um, is going to be supplanted. You see Steve Bannon, you know, his former chief strategist, uh, tweeting out that, uh, that he thought Anthony Fauci, the infectious diseases head, should have his head on a spike, the beheading of the medical guy. And then, you know, so that is the kind of the broad Trump world in orbit, and that's going to change. Uh, I've, rambled, I've, I've, I've rambled on there, but on climate change alone, I think that makes, you know, that has some significance. Well, it'd be interesting what, what the climate change debate adjustments that we'll now have to follow with Joe Biden will do to Australia and Scott Morrison's reaction to it. I mean, Morrison the other day was brutal when he came out in the wake of comments by Boris Johnson trying to urge Australia to move its emissions target uh, for the future and, and using hyper-nationalism and pointing out that, you know, we'll do what we want. It was sort of echoes of John Howard around asylum seekers. We will decide our climate polic uh, policies and the circumstances in which they're made. Uh, but, you know, you've got the UK, you can add the US now, at least under Biden. Where does that leave Australia's response? Uh, maybe we continue to, to push back because there's a domestic political imperative here for the, for the Morrison government. We will see. Um, but yeah, it's, look, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see some of these changes. Uh, I mean, I, I, from my perspective, uh, one of the things about a Biden presidency on the international stage that I'm looking forward to seeing what does or doesn't happen is, you know, from an Australian perspective, what happens right here in our own backyard. You know, it's Pacific policy. We saw shifts in that front under Obama. Uh, and what happens now uh, in terms of how America approaches our region specifically as we continue to see the rise of china true enough we're nearly out of time but uh a a, a word on just one other element in in this year of black lives matter uh, donald trump has said in his speeches that more african americans have voted for him than have ever voted for any republican candidate i don't know technically if that's true or not and you have to fact check anything he says uh there has certainly been uh if you like attention being given to the notion that uh, that African-Americans can be torn away from the, from the Democratic Party that have been taken for granted there. But overwhelmingly, the numbers show that in the critical seats of Michigan, of Georgia, of uh, Pennsylvania, the African-American vote came out this time. They came out overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. And in such a tight election, probably were decisive factors in their expectation that there'll be some change. As someone said, uh, an African-American said, um, uh, we used to pick cotton, now we pick presidents. And there's um, <laughs> great pride in the black faces that I'm seeing down in the crowds outside the White House uh, today and, and a sense that, uh, you know, a change is going to come, a change has come today. 
uh, there's still an enormous amount of work to do to bind up all the various wounds in, in the United States, but uh, it's a step forward, not a step back as they perceive it today. Any last thoughts, Peter? Oh, look, just that, you know, you, you, you cover politics and I mean, you've done it a lot longer and more broadly, Hugh, than I have, but you, you cover politics. You know, I, I have seen Democrat and Republican presidents come and go that I've had strong opinions for and against. Uh, largely, though, when I look at political contests, whether it's in the US or particularly here in Australia, you know, you might see advantages one way or the other, but your job is to try to really just cover it. Uh, and to the extent that I have opinions, often my opinion is that it's a bit of a Tweedledum, Tweedledee contest. You know, there might be specifics that one candidate or the other is better at, and I pivot between both sides of politics as far as that goes. Uh, but ultimately, I tend to think that democracy throws up for us in these systems reasonable candidates on both sides. Uh, Donald Trump has been the exception to that for me. I mean, I, I, I don't believe voters make mistakes. Uh, I believe that, you know, I, I do take that Howard maxim that the public gets it right. And I even thought that in 2016, frankly, you know, the, the arrogance of the Democrats to put someone like Hillary Clinton up, given her negatives, uh, and the time that America was at, uh, that it needed a bit of a kick in the bum that someone like Donald Trump could just highlight that there are large tracts of America who feel left out. But I really believe that after he was elected, that he would grow into the job and he didn't, he sank into it and he got smaller and smaller and more and more ridiculous, more and more offensive, more and more disgraceful. Uh, he is a liar. He is a cheat. He is a joke. And after four years, I'm actually just proud that America got rid of this buffoon this dangerous, dangerous buffoon, because if they'd re-elected him, this would have been the first election in all elections in my lifetime or historically that I've covered and watched and researched that I would have for the first time ever said, I think the American people, the public in a democracy got it wrong. And I I'm glad that that didn't happen because that's the last thing I wanted was to lose that faith. Americans got it right. They got rid of that complete piece of shit. There you go. And one thing about it is that had they gone for Trump again, as some people reflected upon it, that would then have defined America in his image. Because if you vote from twice, yeah. that's precisely what you want. But instead, what we've seen here, in fact, is the glory of democracy is that it has, we haven't quite got to the point to see whether uh, this turns out to be a false prophecy, but uh, it allows for a peaceful transfer of power. That, that no matter how powerful the president is, there is something more power, powerful, and that is the votes of the people. And so, uh, as they say, he's a welcome guest at the White House until January the 20th. At that point, he's just another trespasser on federal policy, <laughs> on the federal <laughs> property. And, uh, and, and, and the Secret Service is fully within its powers to march him out the door. That won't happen. But uh, a transfer of power is taking place in the United States. It's a thing of, of, of glory in its own way, and we can all be grateful for it. And Hugh, I know we're almost out of time, but let me just say this, you know, the, the speech, or sorry, the, the note that was left by the last one-term president to lose, George Bush Senior, uh, in the Oval Office for Bill Clinton for his inauguration was incredibly gracious, well-worded, telling him you are now my president, all Americans president, and I'll be rooting for you. you. Would Donald Trump write that? Not a chance in hell. He's more likely to leave the toilet unflushed. <laughs> he could be bobbing around in it. Um, and on that unsavory thought, an image, um, Peter <laughs> Van Anselen, 
uh, we'll talk to you very soon. Stay safe over there. Indeed. As America wakes to a new president, we'll see you soon. Take care, Bye now. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. <laughs>